almost 250 years ago now, about 246 years ago, some men got together and they pinned their name to a document. They raised the concern that men should govern themselves as free men. They began to pattern a new government. It's amazing all the discussion that took place and debates that took place. A man by the name of Thomas Jefferson went to a small country church to visit just a few miles from his house one evening. They were uh, having a business meeting in the church. And uh, he went back home, and the, later that week the preacher went and visited with him, and he said, uh, he said, uh, is there any questions that you have or anything I can answer for you as you visited our church? And Thomas Jefferson looked to him and he said, you know, I was amazed at your business meeting. He said, I believe that the form of government that you have in your church is exactly the kind of government that we need here in our new country. And a lot of our country was patterned from the democratic uh, voting of individual people. Each person had a voice. Each person had a vote. And they were to elect representatives that would then go to a national uh, place here in the country and to represent those people. It was to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I believe in the day we live that a lot of that has become lost. People that have tried to um, teach that they know better what the mind of our founding fathers were than the founding fathers themselves. And that the founding fathers meant this, really. They didn't, they didn't say what they meant, and they didn't mean what they said. Men over the years have paid a great price for liberty, none greater than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to buy our liberty. There's going to be any reflecting and rejoicing on the sacrifices that have been made for liberty today. I think we would be remiss if we do not take time to recognize the fact that Christ gave all that men may go free. I uh, enjoy studying history. I, my sister actually, my older sister, became a history teacher. And um, she studied and went to college for it. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing it. I enjoy it too much to have to be made to study it. So, uh, But I enjoy uh, reading and studying about history. And I uh, got a hold of a book. It was written 25 years <coughs> after our War for Independence. It was written by a man who served alongside of Francis Marion. Francis Marion in history was known as the Swamp Fox and was almost single-handedly him and the band of men uh, responsible for keeping Cornwallis uh, south, uh, giving George Washington enough time to form a, a force that could then go against him at Yorktown. And probably was one of the most influential groups of fighters during our War for Independence. Their fighting techniques and skills were different from in that day than what had been traditionally done in history where army would line up in lines against another army and they would just shoot back and forth. Francis Marion learned to, to hide and to fight and to run and uh, live to fight another day and come back for another battle. Through the course of their time of operation, they had several of their men captured and also, in response, they had captured a number of the British. They contacted one of the officers aboard, one of the commanders aboard one of the English ships that was responsible and decided to meet under a flag of truce to discuss 
uh, prisoner exchange. <clears throat> they blindfolded the commander of the ship and took him into the camp where Francis Marion was. They discussed the prisoner exchange and came to an agreement. And as uh, the man was getting ready to go, the commander was getting ready to go, uh, Francis Marion, being the gentleman that he was, offered to have the commander stay and have dinner with him that night in the camp. And the commander, trying to be gracious, accepted and said, I'll be glad to stay. He was appalled as he began to talk with Francis Mary, and he looked around and he saw the ragtag group of men, many of them with no shoes and rags for clothes, most of them skin and bones, and were struggling to eat. They prepared the very best that they had in the camp and laid it before the commander of the ship of the British Navy fleet. It was a wild potato that they had found and roasted in the embers of a fire. There was no butter, there was no salt or seasoning, just a starchy wild potato. And as they sat there eating it, the commander would choke down the potato as best he could. As he got about halfway done with it, he sat the potato down and apologized to Francis Mary and said, I can't eat anymore. He said, uh, I'm, I'm appalled. He said, I, I assume that you pay your men very well to get them to fight the way they do under such conditions. He said, our men on ship are at half rations and they eat better than this. And we still see them deserting every day. And Francis Marion told the commander, he said, we do not pay them at all. And the commander was puzzled by that. He said, how in the world do you get your men to fight? And you don't even pay them, and they endure such hardships. Francis Marion made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, it is the heart that is all. If a man is interested, he will do or suffer anything. And always I think of the Christian life and the situation we find ourselves in sometimes. We are so uh, apathetic, if you will, perhaps, because of the great liberty and the great freedom and the great comfort that we now enjoy. But it was not always that way in our country. And as a result of that, we're beginning to see the loss of religious liberty. As I pondered what to preach on, on Fourth of July Sunday, my heart in recent months has been broken for our country. The condition that it's in, the way we're turned from God, not just in secular life of our society, but even among Christians, neglecting His Word, denying the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, or denying the truth that they read in it as being old and outdated and that it doesn't match the society that we live in today. Can I tell you this? Our Bible was never meant to be influenced by the world. It was meant to influence our world. It was never meant to be changed by the world. It was meant to change the world. The Bible is the thing that God has given as a stable anchor, as a, as a steadfast and a secure foundation to build all other aspects of life on. We get to 2 Timothy chapter number 3, and Paul, teaching Timothy, makes this statement as he gets to verse number 1. He said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, 
disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. Father, we pray that You'll bless the message and, Lord, use it in a way that uh, will, will stir our hearts, will bring conviction to them, and, Lord, where necessary, we will make the changes that are needed in our life to be able to make a, a difference in this world that You would long for us to make that we would have the power of Your Holy Spirit resting upon us as we walk through the darkness of this world that we live in today, that there would be a broadness of the light that we're able to shed and a savoriness to the salt that we're able to spread in this world, to be able to take Your Word and to hold it forth with truth and with power, with strength and without wavering. Lord, may we have revival and may it start in our hearts And may it spread to this country, I pray that You would not give up on us, but that You would allow Your Holy Spirit to continue to bring conviction to us. I pray that You'll bless the time that we spend here, give guidance as we study Your Word this morning and try to learn some things that Paul was instructing Timothy about that will help us in the day that we live as we see very similar things taking place. So, Father, help guide us today. We ask for Your Holy Spirit to do a work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul makes this mention as he begins to speak of this with Timothy. He says, Timothy, there's going to come some time in the last days, and he refers to here as perilous times, times that are, that are hazardous, times that are risky, times that are, uh, are, are dangerous times. And he speaks of two different things here, and, and I want us to look at them. And the, the, the beginning of... Uh, his his uh, argument is uh, there are some men that have done some things and it has resulted in, verse number uh, 5, where he says, "...having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away." I've read this passage a lot of times and I have uh, I've thought, well, this is speaking here of Christian folks who uh, maybe are good Christians, they just don't have the power of God resting upon them. But as I read through the results of having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, I find that these are not Christians that are good Christians that just lack the power of God on their lives. But these are men who claim to be a God unto themselves. Follow with me for a moment, and let's look at the context of what's said here, because it's very important that we understand what brings them to the point of verse number 5, of having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There are some things that took place to get them to this point. Let's take a look at it very quickly. The Bible says this, verse number 2, "...for men shall be lovers of their own selves." The way that these folks got to a place in their life where they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof, was it began with a love for self. It began with a love for self. I was doing some research this week, and I am appalled at how many Christian preachers that stand in pulpits of quote-unquote Christian churches that are supposed to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that are well known in our country, they write books, and these books are nothing more than self-help books. And they come up with, uh, I, I wrote down the title of some, you may have some in your library, I don't know. And I don't mean to be offensive today, but I want you to understand that there, there's a, a fellow out in Texas, I think he is, uh, Joel Osteen, and I wrote down some of the titles of some of his books. The One title says this, The Power of I Am. Now, I've heard him talk about this book on the news before, and I am beautiful, and I am strong, and I am good. And, and he talks about the fact of, t- of building yourself up with how good and how, how awesome you are. And that's the gist of his book. He, he has another one called Your Best Life Now. Boy, I sure hope not. I hope not. If this is the best life gets and heaven's worse than this, I don't know if I want to go. I hope this isn't my best life now. But he writes this, this stuff in the best line now. He, he wrote another one called Becoming, or Become a Better You. And, and these, these self-help books, these, these books that are written by religious leaders, and that's the, that's the thing that is so amazing today, or so appalling today, is that religious leaders, who are supposed to be teaching people about the truth of what God's Word said, are coming out and telling people, you need to learn to love yourself. My Bible does not teach me that. I'm sorry, if you're here today saying, well, I think you ought to love yourself, Pastor. My Bible doesn't teach that. It certainly comes to the place where he says, if you do these things, when you you love yourself, there are problems that happen. It brings you to a place of having a form of godliness, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but denying the power thereof. This idea that, that we're supposed to love ourselves, you say, well, Pastor, what does the Bible teach? Well, let's look at a couple things here. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. And let's look in verse number, uh, uh, we're going to start in verse number 10. I want to just, I want to qualify some of the things that we're saying here. I will say this. Our lives are valuable to God. But that does not mean that we look at ourselves and we love ourselves for who we are. Look what it says here in Romans chapter number 3. I'm not disvaluing things. I'm not saying that men are not valuable. I am saying that we ought not love ourselves. Look what it says here in Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 10. As it is written, there are few. Is that what your Bible says? There, There are several. There are a couple. There's at least one. No, how many? There's none what? Righteous, no, not one. And I'm going to love that. I'm not a righteous person, and I'm going to love the fact that I'm not righteous. I don't think that's what my Bible's telling you. In fact, I think what my Bible's telling me is I am something that I really ought to be hating. I ought to be looking at it and saying, I don't want that in my life anymore. Now, before you jump to the conclusion and say, Pastor, saying we ought to hate ourselves... I think that we need to understand this. We are to love what God can do through His transforming work in us. But when it comes to us, we better hate it because God hates it. Let's look at it for a moment here. Verse number 12 of the same chapter as we go on down. Uh, let's, let's just read on through. We'll read 11 and 12. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are, are there together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth what? Good. No, not one. Let's go down to verse number 23. For all have what? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's look over in chapter number 7, if you will, in verse number 24. Romans chapter number 7 and verse number 24. 
Notice Paul writing here. He says, I love myself because I am so good. I wonder what Paul would have thought of Joel Osteen's books. What does he say here? When he gets to verse 24, what does your King James Bible say? Oh, what? Wretched man that I am. Do you think Paul loved himself? No, I think Paul mortified the deeds of his body. I think Paul looked at himself and was upset at himself because the things he knew he should do, he found himself not doing. And the things he knew he shouldn't do, he found himself doing. So much so that Paul said at the end of his life, as he, as he grew so much spiritually, he said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Look with me, if you will, in uh, Revelation chapter 3 for a moment. Revelation chapter 3. There comes a, a time in, in, in lives that people can feel this way. In, in Revelation 3, and let's look in verse number 17. He's speaking here of a church. And he says this about this church, "...because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked." I don't find God telling me to love myself. I'm thankful He loves me, and I'm thankful He will make something out of me that does not deserve to be made out of. But I am not to love myself. In fact, over and over and over again, the Bible tells me how that there is evil in me. You know what happens? Men begin to understand or begin to believe that men are inherently good. And the truth is, men are inherently bad. Men are inherently evil. Only a transforming work from an almighty God, applying the blood of His own precious Son to forgive us of our sin and to put the Holy Spirit inside of us and do a transforming work where we're no longer following the law of sin and death and following after the flesh, but now we have something made alive inside of us that longs for those things that are good, that desires the things of God that are good. That's what I'm to love. But I'm not to love myself. I'm to love what God has made in me. Turn with me, if you will, one other location to Jude. The book of Jude, just before Revelation, in verse number 23. Jude writes this, "...and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire." Notice he says this, "...hating even the garment spotted by the flesh." This old flesh nature, this, this garment that we have on now, this flesh and bone that we have now, the things that it lusts for, the things that it desires for, those things we're supposed to hate. I don't want to write a, a self-help book that makes you feel good about how you are in your undone condition. I want to show you how wretched you are from God's Word in that undone condition and then show you that the answer to it is to come to God and let Him do an amazing, transforming work in your life. That's what men need. Men don't need to be taught that they're good the way they are. Men don't need to be taught that it's just a matter of their frame of mind or having a good attitude about things or treating people nicely. They need to understand that there is a wretchedness that is inherent in every man that can only be remedied by the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> because these men that Paul speaks of here begin with loving themselves 
there are certain consequences that come from that and, and that decision. There are certain there are certain fruit that is born because of this attitude of self-love. Let's see what the, the attitudes are. Can we look at that for a moment? Notice he says in verse 2, <clears throat> he says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now these are the results of that. When men begin to love their own selves, these things begin to happen, and I'll show you why in each case. The first one is covetous. You know what covetous is? Covetous is not just having a desire for something. Covetous is saying, I desire it so much that I am willing to do anything to get it. Even if it's something that is wrong, I'm willing to do it because I want it so bad. Even if it means I've got to bust the front of a storefront and run in and loot the store, I'm going to get what I want because I want it. That is a beginning of self-love. It all becomes about me. I love me. I want this stuff for me. And a spirit of covetousness begins to crop up in the life of each of us. When there's an attitude of self-love, the Bible says this, that we will become boasters. You know what boasters do? Boasters try to make themselves look better. I can use the Bible terminology because the Bible says that we are to magnify the Lord. Remember what the psalmist wrote? Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. And what a self-loving person does is says, I don't want to magnify God I want to magnify me. Why? Because I love me so much. I just love me so much. I want people to think highly of me, and the only way I know to do that is to be boastful. It's the fruit of self-love. He also says this, proud. Now, pride is the, the root of boasting. Boasting is the outward expression of it. But this idea of pride is an inward attitude. An attitude that I am better and everyone else is beneath me. That's pride. You say, how did you get to that point? I loved myself. I didn't love God. I loved me. And because I loved me, I think I'm the best. By the way, we all practice this. I've said it before. The worst sins there are in the whole world are the sins that everybody else has. They're not mine. You know why? Because I am better than they are. Pride. You know why that happens? Because I love myself. It's what, God's, uh, it's what Paul says. He tells Timothy this. In the last days, these times are going to become perilous because men are going to love themselves so much that they're going to be willing to do anything to get what they want. They're going to go around magnifying themselves, not magnifying God. They're going to have a spirit, an inward... They're going to be convinced in their own heart that they are better and everyone else is beneath them. By the way, when you think that, you think that you're the one that's right and everyone else is wrong, and it does not matter what they say. Two times this week, in in the last seven days since we met here last Sunday morning, two different times, I've heard of two separate instances where the statement has either been spoken by a person, or in one case, a friend of mine sent me a picture that he snapped on the back window of a car that he was behind that said, we don't care what the Bible says. Why? Because they love themselves. They love themselves. Notice what he goes on to say here in verse number 3. Not only are they proud, but they're blasphemers. 
They make the spiritual and the sacred things common. And then they speak of them in a common way. In a degradating way. And even to the place where sometimes they even blame God for the evil that goes on. Blasphemous. Why? Because they, want to, they don't want anything to be above them. And if God is holy and God is right and God is true, then that means somebody is above them and they don't want that. They love themselves too much. So they begin to blaspheme. They take God's name commonly. Oh my G-O-D, people say, without even thinking about it. Blasphemous. G-O-D and then a curse word behind it. Blasphemous. You say, how did we get there? Oh, it's just just a, a figure of speech. Pastor, everybody says it. No. Men that love self more than they love God. Because I'll be frank with you, if you love God the way that you want, or that you ought, you will not use His name in such ways. I don't care how much of a habit you may think it is, you'll have such a love for Him that it will mortify your heart if you use His name that way. Disobedient to parents, why? Why are they disobedient to parents? Because they say, I know what's best for me. Mom and Dad don't. Where'd that spirit come from? Self-love. I love myself so much that I know what's best for me. I don't need to obey Mom and Dad. They're old fuddy-duddies. They don't know what's best for me. By the way, our society and our culture, and if you're in public education, I'm going to say this and I'm going to apologize one time because I don't have time to apologize for it the rest of the service. Our education system is indoctrinating our kids that they are the ultimate decision maker. There is no one above them. And you may like that or you may not like that in the preaching here today, but I'll promise you this, that in our secular education institutions, our kids are not being educated. They are being indoctrinated in this way. They're being taught that they are the greatest. You don't, you don't believe me? Take them to a sporting out event, and even the losers get the same trophy and participation trophy. Why? Because you all are great. Everybody's a winner here. Everybody's a winner here. They're teaching them to be great. Nobody's above them. I think kids are great. But they're little devils sometimes. The Bible teaches us that. Just like, by the way, we are sometimes too. Disobedient to parents, not willing to submit to the godly authority that God has put over them. Why? Because they love themselves too much. Unthankful, not willing to recognize that the blessings and the benefits of life are only there because of God's grace. There's no recognition of it. I have what I have because I worked hard for it. No, you have what you have because God allowed you the health, the skill, the strength, the ability. Unholy. They're profane. They're wicked. They, they mock the holiness that is in, this, in the world. Why? Because they love themselves. They love the lust of the flesh. The desires of the flesh more than they love God. They love pleasure. It's interesting that Moses had to make a choice one day. His choice was, I can suffer with the people of God or I can enjoy the pleasures of sin. But Moses understood that the pleasures of sin were only for a season. We have not taught our generation of young people growing up, nor their parents, 
nor, in some cases, their grandparents. The importance of holy living. We've quit preaching it from our pulpits. We've quit demonstrating it in our homes. Moms and dads that will go to church and clean up nice and carry a Bible and bring their kids to church will go home during the week and live just like the world in front of them. And then we wonder why our kids are not holy. Why they don't live righteously. Why they don't live walking in the Spirit without natural affection. Every relationship of life is distorted by their idea of self-love. That's how we get to a society that says there are more than two genders. they got so many now, they can't even keep up with how many there are. That's how we get to a society that sets aside an entire month to celebrate something God calls an abomination. And then when those who say, we're not going to celebrate it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out here and, and, and tell them that they can't do it. I'm going to tell them I'm not going to participate in it. And I'm the one that's made the villain. Something's wrong with that. Somebody somewhere along the line needs to stand up and say, this is wrong. How did they get to this place? They love themselves. They love themselves more than God. It began with self-love. That's where it started. Truce breakers. They are willing to break any agreement, any promise, any contract, any decision they made, as long as it benefits them. Why? Because they love themselves. They're in it for them. They want everything for them. False accusers. They're going to make whatever false accusation. Boy, haven't we seen this in recent days in the news. People coming out of the woodworks making brash claims that we know and have documented to be false for no other reason than they love themselves and they don't want what they don't want. And they'll say whatever it takes to get what they want. Self-love. Paul said, Timothy, these are going to be perilous times. They're going to be dangerous. There's going to be some some hazards along the way as you deal with these things. In fact, it's going to become so bad that people are going to become, notice in verse number 3, incontinent. They're going to become incontinent. They're not going to be able to restrain their passions. They're not going to be able to restrain. And this, this incontinence oftentimes will result in, 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 in uh, violence and in uh, the idea of breaking laws because they have no restraint. This will result in the law being made and people saying, I will not enforce that law because I love myself too much. I cannot control my own passions and my own desires and my own lusts. We're living in those days, aren't we? Notice it says here, fierce. By the way, every time there's incontinence, it leads to violence. Savage, ravenous, violent, unable to be restrained. It's appalling to me how people will walk into stores in broad daylight, grab things off the shelf, and smile at the cashier as they walk out the door. Fierce. You say, how did we get there? It began by having self-love. 
They became lovers of their own selves, and it all became about them. Who cares about the other? Who cares about my neighbor? Who cares about my country? Who cares about my church? It's all about me. Me, me, me. And I'm sad to say that influential religious leaders of our country, people that, that are there that men and women of our country look up to for advice, for the wisdom of God's Word, are coddling and saying, you're your best person. Love yourself. Make sure you, the problems we have is just the fact that you don't love yourself enough. No, the problem is we love each other, ourselves too much. We don't hate what we are enough. We don't have enough desire for God to change us into something that we can rejoice in, into something that we can love, into something that we can look at and say, I'm so fulfilled in my life. There's great joy. There's great peace in this. We don't hate what we are already enough to say, that's what I want. We love what we are. And we're taught to do so. And we're influenced to do so. But God's Word does not teach us such things. They're traitors. They're heady. The word heady here means to act without thinking. The idea of someone who is under influence of perhaps either alcohol or some kind of psycho uh, type of a drug, the idea of their minds not being engaged before their actions take place. Well, we find a lot of people taking action today without thinking through what the results of that action are going to be. Notice this. It, high-minded. But in verse 4, I want you to see this. It began with a love for self. Notice where the end is. They have gone all the way from loving themselves to loving pleasure more than God. People that were probably sincere initially in their life, people who maybe even had some desire or inclination towards the things of God, and maybe even at some point had loved Him because they allowed themselves to love themselves and what they were. They go from loving self to loving pleasure more than loving God. By the way, even in good churches, Bible-preaching churches, we find that there are things in our life, are there not, that we love more than we love God? Think about that for a moment. When was the last time you missed time with God's people and around His Word to do something you love doing? How did we get that far? We loved ourselves. We loved ourselves, and because we loved ourselves, we loved pleasure more than we loved God. Can I mention something here? And that is this, that when we love anything more than God, it becomes an idol. Well, Pastor, I don't practice idolatry, don't we? By the way, we all have them. 
those things, some more than others, but all of us have those desires, don't we? How in the world did we get here? How did we get to a place in a country and a nation that came here to give liberty to seek the God and to love Him and to worship Him freely and openly? How did we get here? There was a progression or a digression that was taking place over the last 140-some years, 46 years or so. Paul spoke of it. Notice he says this in verse number 6. He says, For of this sort, meaning those that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, he says, From such turn away. For of this sort are they which, notice this word here, creep into houses. It began by this mindset creeping in subtly without us realizing it into our homes. That's where it began. You go back in our history and you find out when we begin to drift, you can find that it's when God or when, when Satan began to creep into our homes. Just making small exceptions to the to the things we know to be right. Just little things. We'll let that one slide. That's not a big thing. And it creeps in. Notice he says this, and led what? For of this sort are they which crept in, creep into houses and lead captive. It starts with a creeping into the home, but before long, there's a bondage there, isn't there? Somewhere along the line, somebody should have seen the creeping and said, whoa, whoa, get out of here. Stop this. That's not going to happen. We are not going to let this continue to creep. And if they allowed it to, it wasn't long before they were brought captive of it. They now have no choice in it. They follow these things and they're, they're captive to these desires and they're captive to this mindset and this philosophy. And they are even convinced in their own hearts that it is right. You say, how do you know that? Because verse 5 says they have a form of godliness. They believe they're right. And anyone that is different from them, they look at it and say they're wrong. And they become a God unto themselves, establishing what is right in their minds. We're never to establish what's right. Where do we find what's right in this world? I'm not going to find it in my heart. The Bible tells me my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, or deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If I'm expecting my heart, my perception of things to establish what's right, we're in major trouble. By the way, if you trust your heart and your perception of things to establish what's right, we're in trouble. It got so bad in Noah's time, the Bible says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They became a God unto themselves. They have a form of godliness. They say we are the moral high ground. And everyone that doesn't agree with us is morally deviant. This is how a society can call evil good and good evil. Where did it start? They began to love themselves. They became lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. 
Paul said that you need to turn away from them because these are the ones that will come in and they'll begin by creeping into your houses. And if you don't stop it, they will, be, they will end it by leading captive your family. Notice what he says here. Lead, creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. They've, they've gone so far down this road that they themselves now become characterized by these, these consequences of a self-love. They're led away of, with divers' lusts. Why? Because they love themselves now too. They have been indoctrinated with the concept, well, you just really need to love yourself. You're having a bad time, you're suffering with depression in life, and you just need to learn to love yourself. No, no. I need to learn that the problem is I'm a vile, wretched, wicked person. And I need a transforming work from a God who is able to do it. That's the only way I'm ever going to get to the place where I have peace and joy and contentment. Notice this in verse number 7. The Bible says, Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They come up with the next greatest idea. There's the problem. It's getting worse. And our last solution didn't fix it. Ha ha! I got a new idea. Let's try this one now. By the way, it continues to unravel and spiral. As man says, I am the moral authority. I am the origin of a moral absolute. I am a God unto myself. Therefore, what I say is right is right. And what I say is wrong is wrong. And my Bible does not teach that. The sad thing is, in the United States of America, a land that was established for religious liberty and religious freedom, for men to love God and draw close to Him and serve Him and live for Him openly and without fear of persecution. God's people are being so carefully undermined by the creeping in of this philosophy. You've got to love yourself. You've got to love yourself. You first. I shared several weeks ago how appalled I am when openly on Facebook and other social media platforms I see God's people, people I respect, people I have loved over the years and cared about as far as their spiritual well-being and people that I knew loved the Lord and, and uh, would follow the Scriptures who began to depart from those things. And the comment made by other fellow Christians was, the important thing is that you're happy. That is not what my Bible says. In fact, if anything, we ought to be unhappy with what we are. The happiness will come when we allow God to make us what we can become. But I am not living my best life now. Not in the things of the flesh. I don't have the power of I am when I'm living in the flesh. It says in verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to show you very quickly what happened here. 
In verse 5, we found that the end of all of this, the self-love, the loving of pleasure more than loving God, brought them to a final resting place of having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Paul contrasts this condition in the first part of chapter 4 with what he teaches Timothy in verse number 14 and following. He says, but... He goes through and talks about all of this stuff. He says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? You know how we got to the place of self-love in our world? Preachers and churches quit preaching doctrine of God's Word. We went through a period of time in our society where we did not teach the whole counsel of God. We, we put more focus, and, 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 and I, I'm going to say some things here, and it may, may ruffle a few feathers. I hope it doesn't. It's just an observation. But we went through a period of time in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s where more focus was put on outward service and actions than we did on strengthening the inner man and letting God do a transforming work in the heart. And and we spent so much time feeling like the more active I am, the more time I spend in serving, the more spiritual I must be. And we incorrectly understood that concept. Because it was never about our actions and our service that made us spiritual. It was the heart... The actions and the service were to stem to be the fruit of the heart that was walking with God. And so what happened? Preachers of good Bible-preaching churches, King James Version, Leatherlum, I mean, they would storm hell with a squirt gun kind of preachers. These preachers got up in the pulpit after working and laboring so hard physically that week, doing the, if you'll forgive me, air quotes, work of the ministry. That they had no time to pray, they had no time to walk with God, and they had no time to prepare a new sermon. And they were giving warmed over truths to a generation of God's people, and the doctrine was neglected. So we raise a generation of folks who are disinterested in knowing doctrine. We never hear it. It started with just being ignorant of it, but eventually not having a diet of doctrine caused them to say, I don't care if I have doctrine or not. I'm happy with my church. Because, boy, let me tell you, we're an exciting church. Our pastor gets up there and he preaches great messages. And, boy, our buses were full today and our Sunday school classes were full today. But there was no doctrine taught. And no desire now, because we've been so long without it, we've equated success in the Christian life with the numbers. And with the amount of time that we spent and the the exhaustion that we had at the end of the week, we almost wear it as a merit badge. How tired I am from serving God this week. We've spent no time transforming the inner man. And so we neglect doctrine to begin with. Then we get to a place where we no longer desire the doctrine. Look with me in verse number 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. It leads to a disinterest 
You're not seeking after the doctrine of God's Word. You're seeking after physical pleasure or uh, 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 the pleasure of this world. The love for the things of pleasure rather than the things of God. There's a disinterest in the things of God. There's a disinterest in doctrine. And we start with ignorance of doctrine. We end up with disinterest in doctrine. And if we allow that to continue, it's not very long before not only is it a disinterest, but there's a distaste for doctrine. When we hear it, we begin to resent the doctrine. It, it, it speaks against what I'm doing in my life and how I live and what I am on the inside. And so we begin to have a, a, a bad taste in our mouth when doctrine is preached. Well, I'll tell you what, our, our church, it's just not as exciting as the one down the road. They're, they're, we're not having all the promotions. We're not having all the big events. <clears throat> Can I tell you, my Bible does not tell me as a pastor to be sure that I am faithful to plan big events for our church. But it does tell me to teach doctrine. Why? Because it's important. God knows that there's a cause and effect that happens here. When doctrine is neglected, self-love begins. We're content with how we are. In fact, we begin to love how we are. We don't see the points of Scripture that tell us, Oh, wretched man that I am. We're not taught those things. We're taught that if we had 150 on a school bus that only seats 72, boy, that must be a spiritual bus captain right there. No, all that means is he went out and spent a lot of money to give things away, to give kids to come on a bus. That doesn't mean that he's walking with God or spiritual at all. It leads to a distaste. Verse number 7, the Bible says this, "...ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth." They begin to look elsewhere for truth, and they can never find it because they so distaste, they so hate. And it gets to the place where they become intolerant of doctrine. As more and more they become a God unto themselves, they don't need doctrine. They are the source of their own truth. They decide what is right and what is wrong in their own hearts. And the sad thing is, their establishing of these personal moral values are influenced by the society they live in. And so they began to degrade, and as men's hearts degrade, as those that name the name of Christ and claim to be godly, but deny the power thereof, begin to degrade, so our society degrades. And it becomes a vicious cycle that society is always a step or two more degraded than the hearts of men. And if the hearts of men are trying to establish their morals based on society, that means we have a continuous decline of the moral condition of a nation. It finally leads to despising the doctrine of God's Word. Verse number 8, the Bible says, Now as Janus and Jambres, what? Withstood Moses. So do these also resist the truth. 
men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It all started in verse 6 when they began to creep into the houses. It now ends with, with, with resisting the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. I'm thankful Paul says in verse number 10, but Timothy, this happens. In the last days, it's going to be perilous times because this is going to be rampant. It's going to be apparent. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. How did we get here? We failed to teach doctrine. Simple as that. We failed to focus on the inner man. We became people that loved ourselves, and because we continued down that path, we began to love pleasure more than we loved God. Till we get to a point today where even God's people love things more than they love God. How did we get here? We didn't teach doctrine. Can we fix it? The answer is yes. Notice what Paul says here as a response to all of this in verse 10. He says, But thou hast fully known my Doctrine doctrine was paramount in Paul's life. Now notice, when Paul focused on doctrine, there were some things that were the fruit of that. Let's see what they are here. The doctrine controlled and made his manner of life such that it was a testimony to the truth. The doctrine made the change in it. His manner of life was such because his doctrine was right. He says, Thou hast fully known my doctrine... My doctrine has affected my manner of life. By the way, his doctrine affected his purpose in life. His doctrine also affected, believe it or not, his faith. His doctrine affected his long-suffering. His doctrine affected his charity. His doctrine affected his patience. His doctrine affected the, the, the perseverance through persecutions. His doctrine affected his, per, his perseverance in afflictions. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. How do we fix it? Look at verse 10. We need to, number one, fully know the doctrine of God's Word. Number two, we need to apply the doctrine to affect our manner of life, our purpose, our faith, our long-suffering, our charity, our patience, <coughs> the endurance of persecutions and afflictions. And then I want you to notice this. We need to continue <coughs> in these things. We need to be consistent with them. And notice what he says here in verse number 15, in that from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. We need to have a revival of God's people, people knowing this book. In order to do that, we have to study it. We need to know it and to hold it forth as the answer for man's problems. 
We need to come back to the Bible and say it's not about loving self. It's about loving Him. I'm going to do that as I get into His Word and know the Holy Scriptures. I want you to notice which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, in the message with this last challenge, without comment from the Apostle Paul, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for the words that You give us in Scripture.